You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Sacred, the Wonder of God's World. In this series, we'll learn to see the goodness of God's world as men and women who have received the opportunity to become life-giving people, creatively fulfilling the mission given to us by God. Now hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 3, verses 14 through 20. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken." For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name's Travis, and I'm one of the pastors here. And here at Sojourn Church, our mission is to reach people with the gospel, to build them up as the church, and to send them into the world to serve God and others as God has called them. Uh, One of the ways that we express uh, our mission is we gather together on Sundays. We hear the scriptures read, we sing songs together, we hear the word preached, and we observe the Lord's Supper. Other ways that we um, observe and enact our mission in the world is we gather together at times as a family. We are to build one another up as the church. So I want to let you all know there will be a member meeting after the 11 a.m. service. Um, There will be no child care, but if you're not able to attend, we will be recording it, and if you ask for the link, we'll provide it to you. So um, a member meeting immediately following the 11 a.m. service, there will not be um, child care, but if you're unable to attend, we will be recording it, and you can ask for the link if you need it, okay? So... Announcements. Announcements are the things I worry about the most when I'm speaking publicly because I just have a history of messing them up. But uh, Lord willing, I did okay on that one. So Pastor Sam's kind of looking at me with a smirk maybe. So he's like, well, I'll rebuke him after the service. So, <laughs> But we'll have a member meeting after the 11, no child care. We will be recording it and you can get the link if you ask for it. Um, I've got three children, and um, my daughter is the oldest. She's kind of at a point in her life where um, wrestling with dad, or as they said in the country, wrestling, um, is maybe not as appealing as it once was. But my my boys still um, find it to be beneficial. Lindsay Blair, who read the scripture for us, she asked me one time if I if I wrestled with my boys, and there there is clinical research that indicates it is good to wrestle with children. It helps form their 
it helps form uh, connections in their in their brain. So in the name of science and for the sake of the children, I periodically wrestle with my boys. So, <laughs> and uh, because I'm larger than my children, I utilize the, my weight to periodically use my blessed assurance to hip check them and uh, into the wall uh, at times. And so my oldest son, um, I don't know that he initiated the conflict, but I did. And so I uh, hip checked him into the wall the other day and had him pinned. I mean, it wasn't I was just thinking about this. I might get a CPS report for what I'm saying here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so anyway, we're wrestling. Now, here's what happens. This is the general pattern. This is a general pattern in life, but specifically if I initiate a conflict with my oldest son. My oldest son experiences hardship. My youngest son, who has a, a very strong sense of loyalty to his older brother, he will emerge. And he generally shows up with, with healing in his fists, so to speak. And so, sure enough, here comes the hip check. I've got his older brother. My youngest son emerges. He generally says very inaudible things. At some point in time, you clarify that he says, butta. So it's generally like, you know, don't touch my butta, something like that. And so then he enacted vengeance uh, on his dad. And so this is kind of the pattern that emerges. Hardship, somebody emerges, then there's generally hardship on the other side. It's like, hey, you're taking it too far, you know, something like that. It'll also happen when they're playing with other kids. I have to kind of watch it. My oldest son is a pretty accommodating kid, and my youngest is less accommodating. He's very unaccommodating when it comes to his brother. So, And so they're telling me about this situation to where they were playing, and kids are playing, and they're playing on a trampoline, and my oldest son was being accommodating, and I was like, uh-oh. Um, and so he was talking about what was going on. And so he said, well, you know, I was playing and, you know, this was happening and I was getting kicked and so on and so on. It's like, okay, well, this kind of stuff happens. Well, I'm not, I'm less concerned about my oldest son. I mean, he, he was fine. Like, you know, he was playing. It wasn't so terrible. I'm more concerned because I'm thinking to myself, oh man, what did my youngest do? Like, and I can hear it because there's always this escalation and I hear him and I hear all the inaudible sounds and I'm like, oh, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, he's hurt some kid. I got to find out what's going on, apologize, ask for forgiveness. You know, I'm thinking all the, the worst or based on his history, I'm assuming he's done the same thing as he's done before. And then he, he kind of like raises his hands up in the air and he says, no fighting, God, delete fighting. And I was like, delete fighting? And as if fighting is the grand, you know, the cosmic typo in life or something, you know. And so I was like, oh, okay. well, I mean, that's a little better. It didn't sound like he got involved. And for that matter, I mean, it's his version of a lament. I'll take it. You know, I had some sort of hope. And I was like, hey, look, maybe we're getting through to him. Okay, so don't take matters into your own hands. In this instance, I guess, trust yourself to a God who judges justly. So, <laughs> uh, And so I was, uh, as silly as it sounds, I was encouraged. I was encouraged, one, that there was some sort of self-restraint. And then two, I was encouraged because a different pattern started to emerge. And then there was some sort of hardship. And there was some sort of at least desire for an intervention. And at least with regards to me, I felt some sense of encouragement and hope that, hey, you know what? 
Maybe we are getting through. You don't have to render evil for evil. You can trust yourself into the hands of God when things don't go your way or don't go the way for people you love. That's part of what takes place in life. It's, it's part of the message of the Bible. You see, the message in the Bible is that hardship's going to emerge. And what will happen is, is someone will intervene. And then on the other side of it, you know because that someone who intervened is God himself. You have a reason to be hopeful. There are times when hardship emerges and then someone intervenes and it makes things worse. And then there are times when hardship emerges and God intervenes and we have reason to be encouraged and hopeful. In the passage that is before us this morning, you have the beginning of hardship. You have that Adam and Eve, our first parents, sin against God. They disbelieve the word of God. They disobey his voice. They follow the voice of the serpent and hardship emerges. And then God will emerge. And God will emerge and he will enact curses. And in the midst of a collection of curses, he will make a promise. He will make a, a collection of promises to do a work himself and to right the wrongs that the serpent led our first parents to do. And so it's with these things in mind that I pray that you hear God saying my main point, which is this. Hope emerges from hardship by the hand of God. Hope emerges from hardship by the hand of God. And there are three ways that hope will emerge from hardship. First, it will take place because God promises the certainty of our hardship. God promises certainty of our hardship. Second, because God will transform the root of our hardship. And then third, because God will withstand all the causes of our hardship. So first, what we have here in Genesis chapter 3. It is obviously preceded by Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, we have that God, Genesis chapter 1 is God creating the heavens and the earth, and we have it from the, from the cosmic view, from the 5,000 foot view, from the mountaintop view. And in Genesis chapter 2, Moses hones in on the events that take place on day six. And so in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, God creates Adam. And in Genesis chapter two, verses uh, 15 through 17, God approaches Adam, speaks to him. And in Genesis chapter two, verse 22, God creates Eve. And so there's the order. God creates Adam, God approaches and speaks to Adam, God creates Eve. And in Genesis chapter 3, the order is reversed. The serpent does not create anything. The devil takes the form of a serpent, and he approaches Eve, and he speaks to Eve. Now, Adam is present, but he doesn't speak to Adam. And he leads them to sin. And so Eve acts first, and then she gives to Adam, who again is present, and then God shows up. And when God shows up, he speaks to them 
And these are the words that he says in verse 15. Look with me. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. These are the words that the Lord spoke to the serpent. So when he shows up, he speaks to the serpent and he says this, I am going to put enmity, which is just another way of saying hostility or conflict. I'm going to put conflict between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So think through this. We have, there's going to be hostility between individuals the serpent, and the woman. But there will also be hostility between the descendants of those individuals, between the descendants of the serpent and the descendants of the woman. In the scriptures, there is this ongoing movement from these very verses about the hostility between two groups of people. And that is the children of God and the children of the devil. There are only two groups of people in the world. In the book of Genesis, we will eventually see this start to play out. In the book of Exodus, which is a book that we've studied together as a church, we've already witnessed that play out. In that you have Moses as a representative of God, and you have Pharaoh as a representative of the devil. And you have God's people who is represented by Moses and are named Israel, and you have Pharaoh's people who are named Egypt and who are represented by the gods of the Egyptian, many gods. And so throughout the Old Testament, you will see this, but it doesn't stop. This is not one of those where you're like, oh, well, that's Old Testament stuff, not New Testament stuff. Our Lord Jesus in John chapter 8 will speak about people, and he'll say, I have been born of God, but you've been born of the devil. So he continues to categorize people this way. 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 also will speak about there are those who are born of God and practice righteousness. There are those who were born of the devil and practice sin. And here in these verses, you have these promises. And notice here that the conflict is twofold. Individual conflict and corporate conflict. So a problem of one and a problem of many. The oldest of all philosophical problems are related to what is called the problem of the one and the many. And there's various aspects to that. But it's the oldest problem of anybody who's given any thought to anything. And here we have in the text that that problem emerges. So there will be types of conflict that an individual, they themselves, will experience. And there will be kind of conflicts that multiple people experience. My mother will often talk about my grandmother whenever her memory's pricked, and she'll speak about my Egyptian grandmother. And one of the things that she's told me before, she'll talk about this story from time to time, is that when she was a child, my grandmother's father, she moved him into the home, and she took care of him. And so he had a room there, and she would come in and out, tending to his needs. But... She did that while she still had children at home. My mother is one of seven children. Now, six survived infancy. Now, they're pretty broad in age. And so I don't know how many children were at the home whenever my grandmother was tending to her father's needs. But she did that. 
And there you can see an illustration of the conflict that I'm talking about. You have one woman who's tending to the needs of many people. Because that's part of normal life. Like, it's part of normal life on the other side of Genesis 3, is that we're always kind of dealing with these problems that are, we might summarize by saying, this is what I myself have to deal with. But then we have other problems that say, this is what we have to deal with. And the wise person will recognize that normal life is characterized by conflict that, that you and you alone will bear. Like, there will be times, Christian, where you and you alone will bear a burden and nobody else will understand because we're on the other side of Genesis 3. And guess what? There will be conflict at an individual level. And there will be certain burdens that you and you only will you, you will be bearing, you will be carrying. And then there will be conflicts that we carry. So think about this as you go into the holiday season. You're going to be confronted with the problem of one and many You'll be confronted with problems of individual and corporate. So it may be, what do we do about our estranged brother? So there you have a problem of one, an estranged brother. And then you have the problem of the many, which is the family. Or it could be that whose house do we go to for Thanksgiving, mom or dad's? You have problems of one and many. And the reality is, is we apply this by accepting this reality, accepting the reality that in this world, we will have trouble. Like this is part of it. Part of what takes place as a Christian is not that we belong to Jesus and all the troubles and the pain is gone. Because guess what? God promises there will be trouble for us. Some of us are going to bear burdens that only we and we can carry. And then some of us will bear burdens that multiple of us will carry. And as a Christian, you learn to say, this is a part of it. These are the rules of the game. God's promised it that way. There's something also, there's a couple of things that we need to resist. There would be a, a corporate lie, which is the lie of utopianism. And that is that we ourselves can enact, you know, heaven on earth. And this will happen at different times in different ways. Sometimes this will be promoted through some sort of corporate initiative. And we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And then essentially we'll bring heaven on earth. Or that can come about through political means. And so if you vote for the right person, you will enact heaven on earth. And we are a, we're a couple of Novembers away from hearing all kinds of language about utopian ideas. And that is, if you do the right things, you will enact heaven on earth. And the reality is, is heaven on earth will not be enacted by you and I. We don't have that kind of power. Nobody has that kind of power. And any political promises or corporate promises or personal promises or whatever are, are wrestling against the promise of God Almighty. We don't need to buy into the lie that if we do the right things, we can bring heaven on earth. And, and we also need to reject a personal version of this, which would just be to try to escape conflict. Like, where are you going to go? If you're having personal conflict in your family, in your job, wherever, it doesn't mean that there's not time for, um, for respite. It doesn't mean that there's not a reason to find a new job. It doesn't mean a lot of those kind of things. But where are you going to go where there's, no, where there's no conflict? 
Video games are only going to take you so far. Eating and drinking is only going to take you so far. Hobbies are only going to take you so far. We have to reject those lies. Because God promises there's a certainty to our hardship. Second, because God transforms the root of our hardship. So look here with me again in Genesis 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. So this promise that is made as God is speaking to the serpent, he says that there will be hostility between, between the woman and the serpent, between the descendants of the woman and the serpent. Now, what's significant about that? What difference does that make? God is promising to undo what just happened. You see, what just happened was the serpent tempted our first parents and, and they sinned. They had been created in a state where they were holy and happy, where they had perfect, complete fellowship and communion with God, but now a wedge has been driven. And God, God recognizes this wedge. And guess what he's saying is he's saying, I'm going to do a work in such a way that I'm going to create hostility between the, the desires of the woman and her descendants and the desires of the serpent and his descendants. God is going to transform. He knows what has just happened is, is that because they have sinned, there has been corruption that has entered into their hearts. Their hearts are not pure anymore. Corruption has entered in. So Psalm 51, verse 5, will touch on this, where David says, In sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58, verse 3, says that people go astray from the womb telling lies. Like, have you ever noticed you have you ever noticed you don't have to teach, teach a child how to rebel? Like, you know, to quote the theologian. Buck Owens just comes naturally, right? Like, you don't have to teach them to rebel. You have to teach them to obey. Why? Well, because we've been interjected. Every last one of us have been interjected with a sense of corruption. And God looks at that and he says, I'm going to do something about that. I am going to change what has taken place. And it's significant because when we engage in sin, guess what happens to us? We make our life harder. And when we make our life harder, guess what else happens? We're more likely to engage in more sin. And then guess what happens? You make your life harder. And then what happens? You make it more likely that you engage in sin and so on and so on and so on. And God looks at that pattern and he says, I'm going to get to the root of that and I'm going to change that. I'm going to transform that because their life is going to be marked by suffering. But I'm going to change them to where they might suffer, but they don't have to sin. I mentioned my grandmother earlier. I remember growing up, sometimes we would go to the mall. My grandmother didn't like, she didn't like to take kids in public. It was an Egyptian cultural thing. She, she said we were going to get sick if we went into public. And so she would go, she would kind of like begrudgingly go. And I remember, you know, she'd kind of sit in one spot and she would prefer that we just stayed there beside her so she could protect us from whatever it was. And I can remember at times, you know, at times people would sit by her and, you know, you know, they'd talk to her and talk to her and she'd just kind of smile. She didn't, I mean, she said like, 
hi, how are you, salad, Kool-Aid, and come back. I mean, that was about, and she said Kool-Aid because I, I drank a lot of Kool-Aid as a kid, you know what I mean? And she liked to eat salad. I mean, that was kind of the extent of her English. And so, but people would sit down and they'd talk to her and she'd kind of smile and, you know, they didn't know, they didn't know that she wasn't from around these parts, basically. And so, and you would, I would see her specifically like if a pregnant lady would sit down beside her, she would kind of smile and then I would watch her. And when she prayed, she would silently pray and you'd see her moving her mouth. She'd start praying. When people would come over to the house, maybe we had a visitor and if a lady was pregnant, my grandmother would excuse herself, go to her room and then she'd start praying. If she knew somebody and she knew that the lady was going into labor, she would stop what she was doing and she'd start praying. And typically, especially if she knew them, she'd start fasting and praying. And she would fast and pray all night. And I asked my mom, I was like, why does she do that? And she told me about how my grandmother was orphaned as a child. She told me about how her mother died while she was giving birth to her. And that every time she sees or witnesses or hears about somebody who's going into labor, she starts praying. She comes from a culture where the actions of one, the honor or the shame that result from it is cast on the family. And in her experience, her life was the end of her biological family. As her mother died, her father said that he didn't want to raise her. And he approached her, he approached his twin brother, her uncle, and said, you raise the child. And so he and his wife raised my grandmother. But she never, she never stopped praying whenever she heard about, about childbirth. She never stopped praying whenever she encountered somebody who was pregnant. The reality is, is that curse, it never went away in her life. It's still enacted. Now, how does that happen? Like, how does one go from experiencing the shame that she would have experienced? How does one go with dealing with the hurt that she would have experienced? How does one go from dealing with that to being a person who is given to fasting and praying for people that she, for the most part, never knew? She, many of the times I can remember, she would hear about these things and she didn't know these people and would never meet these people would never encounter these people ever again. Now, how does that happen? Because it would seem to me that she had every reason to be angry and bitter. And she didn't ask. She didn't ask to be born. She didn't ask to be born to the lady that she was born to. She didn't ask for that lady to die. She didn't ask for her father, her biological father, to give her up. She didn't ask to be born into an honor and shame culture. All these things that she didn't ask for. And it would seem to me that would only make logical sense to be angry and bitter. And I never once witnessed that in my life. How does that happen? And that can only happen by the grace of God. That can only happen by the transforming power of God. 
Christian, be encouraged. The things that you want to do, maybe you don't do. But guess what? God is committed to changing your heart so that even your suffering and pain is transformed into opportunities for godliness. Like, God has promised to work in your heart in such a way that even the most awful and terrible things that you could experience or could imagine may become opportunities to not only change your life, but to change the life of somebody else. He is committed to seeing to it, to change your heart in such a way so that what plagues you is not what defines you. And I want to ask you, if you experience that encouragement, can you share that encouragement with somebody else? Like, when was the last time you told somebody that you see God changing their life and heart? You know, we as Christians, we have to resist the urge to think that people just won't change. Well, that's just how they are. Well, you know, that's their personality. Well, you know, they always struggle with that and so on and so on and so on. Hey, look, if you belong to Jesus, God has promised to change you in such a way that you don't have to keep on doing the things that you've been doing. But you can be different. And I want to know, when's the last time you told that to somebody? I've seen God work in your life, and he's changed you. You're not like you used to be. Let's be a church that not only experiences that comfort, but we share that comfort with others. Because the reality is, is yeah, we might experience hardship, but God's going to intervene, and he's going to transform the root, the, the causes of our hardship, which is our own sinful hearts, and make us more like Jesus. Third, God will withstand all the causes of our hardship. Look here again in verse 15. It says, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The Lord will speak here to the serpent. And notice here, it's another promise, but there's this interjection of, of, of bodily injuries, so to speak. He's saying to the serpent that something's going to happen. One is going to emerge. One of the descendants of the woman, one of the descendants of Eve is going to emerge. And what he's going to do is he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, people will oftentimes wear helmets when they're riding bikes or riding motorcycles. And why is that? Well, you might be able to withstand injuries to a lot of places in your body, but, but, a, but a, an injury to your head is potentially fatal. And surely to have your head crushed is definitely fatal. And so what's going to happen, there's this comparison and contrast between the affliction that's going to come on the serpent and the affliction that's going to come on the one who descends from a woman. And the one who will descend from a woman, the serpent will strike his heel and he will bruise it. Now, what type of injury is a bruise? Well, a bruise is, it's, it's an actual injury, but it's a temporary injury. And so the serpent will be able to strike one of the, the offspring of the woman and he will bruise him, but it's going to be temporary. And here the language that is emerging is that there will be a conflict that will take place in the future. And the conflict is significant. And the conflict is one where there is going to be a warrior who is going to emerge. Paul will use this kind of language in Romans chapter 16 verse 20. And he says, God will soon put Satan under the feet of Christians. 
And we know from the scriptures that, that in the course of time, Paul says that there was a man in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ was born of a woman. And he did what? Well, he was born to redeem those under the law so that they would become children of God. And so this promise here is that there will be a warrior who will emerge. And what he will do is he will take on the serpent and he will enact, he will enact punishment on the serpent. The serpent will do temporary damage. And we know from the cross that our Lord Jesus did experience temporary damage. But what happened? God promised that he would raise him from the dead. And that's what happened. He raised him from the dead and he exalted him and he gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And the reality is those who are Christians, they give themselves to that and they have, they have bowed the knee of their hearts and they've said, yes, Jesus is Lord. But the reality is also that not everybody has confessed that Jesus is Lord and God's enemy, the devil, the serpent, refuses to bow and say that Jesus is Lord. And that will be, that will be the certainty of his sentence. And the day will come when Jesus will enter in, and he won't come as a lowly servant, but he will come as an exalted savior, and he will finally crush the serpent. He will put an end to all that causes us harm, sin, and death. And so the songwriter is right when he says, the Lord is a warrior. He shatters all wrong. Surely he is my salvation my strength, and my song. That's evident in the word and it's evident in the Lord's Supper because you see when the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat of it, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he takes a cup of wine and he blesses it and he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Take, drink of this, do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat from this bread and you drink from this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.